On this podcast, we talk with rural mavericks, futurists, and researchers to raise bold voices for rural people and places. I'm Caitlin, producer of the show, and I'm asking you to do your part. Support the Rural Futures podcast by leaving a review, which helps new listeners find us, and become a sponsor by visiting ruralfutures.nebraska.edu slash podcast. You know, I have this philosophy about future workforce, future people in any field. And it's that um, you can't just do the routine things if you're going to flip something. Otherwise, in 25 years, guess what? Exact same thing if we're going to use the same approach. Rural Futures, the podcast where we connect thought leaders and doers at the intersection of technology and what it means to be human. Every episode, we talk with entrepreneurs, researchers, and achievers to create impact for generations to come. And now, here's Dr. Connie. Hello, and welcome back to the Rural Futures Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Connie. And joining me today is a very special guest, Dr. Howard Liu of the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where he serves as Interim Chair of Psychiatry but also as the director of the Behavioral Health Education Center of Nebraska. Welcome to the podcast, Howard. Thanks so much. Really enjoy being here, Connie. Well, we're excited to have you. You know, many listeners may not know, but a lot of them will. You know, mental health is such a huge issue in rural areas. And you're one of the leaders in the Mavericks really finding you know, resolution to this, but also innovating in the space. So tell us a little bit more about you, Dr. Howard Liu. Well, I appreciate it. You know, I'm actually, I'm an MD, which means, uh, you know, I can prescribe medications uh, and uh, I'm still a practicing child and adolescent psychiatrist, but I also see some adults as well. And so, you know, I've, I've got a fairly good sense of what the needs are just from a clinical practice. Uh, rural needs, you know, are <clears throat> certainly you know, one of our biggest mission areas for Beacon, the, the workforce center for the state. I still have some patients that will drive uh, literally all day to come see me here in Omaha, and they have to spend overnight, and it's a real real hassle, and then they have to take time off from work, and, and it's, it's very challenging. The other piece we know is that there is stigma for all mental health, but it, it, I think it's, it's strong in rural communities as well. And for example, there's a higher rate of depression and also uh, there's been recent data about suicide in farmers as well. And that's really been a concern. So really trying to find those that are coming from small towns to train in a licensed mental health profession and then go back to practice where they grew up. Why do you think this issue of mental health has become such a big challenge in rural areas? How have you seen that transpire over time? Well, I think there's a demand and supply uh, imbalance. So frankly, uh, the demand for mental health is increasing across the U.S., you know, and so uh, as, for example, now pediatricians are, are screening all teens for depression at age 12, you know, you imagine that there's a good number that would screen positive. And uh, where do you then send them? Uh, in, if you're in an urban area, you could probably find a specialist, but in many uh, small towns and uh, rural communities, uh, you know, typically you rely on a family physician, a family doctor, or maybe uh, some other kind of uh, uh, primary care provider. And many of those docs uh, and advanced practice nurses and PAs uh, had a very short rotation in psychiatry, and uh, they often feel comfortable with maybe ADHD or depression, but less comfortable if it's something more severe, like bipolar disorder. You know, and certainly if there's issues also with uh, what we call substance use disorders, you know, addiction, 
that also is a challenge. So really uh, not having someone to refer to and then feeling like uh, they're a bit out of their elements uh, is a real challenge. And most of the workforce is clustered in, in uh, bigger cities uh, in Nebraska and, and certainly across the U.S. that's true as well. So there's a geographic gap. Well, let's talk a little bit about the future. I want you to put your futurist hat on, Dr. Liu, and tell us how you see this evolving in the future. What do you think the future of mental health looks like? Well, there's two principles I would say that really should define training in the future and the, and the future workforce for mental health. So one is that it has to be in a team. And right now, I would say this is true, not just the mental health, but many areas of healthcare. Uh, everyone does things in their own silo, right? So, you know, we have psychologists that train separately from psychiatrists who often have limited interaction with social workers, and they don't really train with counselors. And, and this goes on through all the professions. And then everyone graduates. And then uh, people in primary care really don't know how to navigate working with these individuals. So uh, early in, in their training, I believe that we need to have a lot more uh, interprofessional activities where people are working in real teams on actual cases, thinking through how do they function at the highest part of what they call their scope of practice. You know, so, uh, you know, there are many uh, professions that can prescribe medications, but, you know, typically the most complex uh, will go to a psychiatrist because they have the longest training, you know, typically 12 years. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, many uh, straightforward cases can go to a physician assistant or advanced practice nurse. And, uh, and then only, you know, on the more complex cases would they potentially refer them on. I think that's a good population health approach. You know, the second thing is uh, not every patient uh, needs to be seen by a specialist. So we have to do a much better job of supporting those in primary care and also, frankly, supporting those who are teachers and, and even uh, in, in settings such as corrections where people are incarcerated, uh, really making sure that those individuals have access to expert consultation. So I think just looking at different ways that aren't just the same old, well, you know, you got to get on the wait list, come see me in my clinic, even if that's six hours away, that's not the right model. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think this is what's so exciting about the work you're doing, a lot of what the Med Center, other partners are doing. You know, how do we create these new models that are more holistic and really patient-centered to get them the help they need? you know, in a better way and in, in just a higher quality way, but also faster, you know, with a lot of this, there's that need for speed, so to speak, so that people aren't out there really challenged um, in their lives and not getting the help they need. That's right. Well, and I think that speaks even in the way we're having this interview today, uh, virtually, we're not in the same room, right? And uh, I think telehealth is certainly another area, uh, particularly as it eventually expands more and more into people's homes and mobile phones, you know, I think that will be another path to access. But uh, Connie, I think there's no way around uh, the idea, though, that even if we have the best tools, we'll have to face stigma head on. I think that there are many people in all professions, in all communities that are frankly, uh, you know, scared to death to admit that they may have depression, they may have post-traumatic stress disorder, they may be struggling with drinking uh, excessively, whatever it might be. But, uh, you know, that's a, a something we're going to have to address as a society. There is a place for um, leaders. And I see that, uh, you know, there's a lot of folks that are even healthcare providers or academics or even, uh, you know, uh, presidents of universities that will sometimes tell their story. And they may not be, you know, on the CNN, you know, but, uh, but they're certainly known to their community. And, and I think knowing someone real 
that you actually know that uh, is open about having gone through that depression or that severe anxiety, whatever it might be, that prolonged grief when someone passed away, it's very helpful. And, and, and many of those that I talk to will say when they come out with their story, uh, then all sorts of people will come up to them, often quietly, just to share their own experiences. And that's the kind of thing that I think whether you're in a small town, Nebraska, whether you're in a bigger city, we need more of that. You know, there's a lot of family history and genetics that play into this, as you know very well. And some of us are more vulnerable. And uh, we'll see this also in veteran populations, of which, you know, many rural communities uh, you know, have a lot of veterans and uh, a lot of folks that are active duty. And you may have four individuals that are in the same, you know, Humvee or something, and a, some uh, blast goes off. But why is it that, you know, one out of the four has more severe symptoms, even though it's the same stimulus? You know, that's, that, I think there's different factors that make us vulnerable. When would it be time to seek help? And what would you recommend around that? That's an excellent question. For me, what was sort of like asking what is normal and when should you get help, right? And, and I think it's really when you have problems functioning in the key areas of your life. So uh, if you are a student of any kind, whether it's K through 12 or your higher education grad student, and normally you're a you know, A or B student and, and then you're, you're, you see that it's really been declining, uh, consistently, it's not just one class, but it's an overall trend. That would be a concern for me. You know, if you're someone that's working right now and then you normally enjoy work and have a lot of energy and, and, and a lot of passion for it, but you're finding it much harder to go in, uh, maybe having more absenteeism, uh, more conflicts with colleagues, those kind of things, that would be a concern. Uh, and then your home or social life, I think those are areas that, particularly in depression and other other kind of things that might happen that we'll see a really big hit because uh, often many of these disorders are quite isolating. If you're anxious or you're depressed, you typically will uh, find less energy to go out and hang out with friends. You may become detached from them. Uh, you may be isolating at home, even if you're living with your family and spending your time in the room. You know, it's, it's a lot of this pieces. So I would say if you're, if you're really seeing a hit on your social life, your home life, your work or your, your school life, I think it's time to seek help. Thank you for that. I think it's great for our listeners to know, you know, they don't have to power through it. It's, that's not really the way this works, but there are people like yourself and others, the people you're training um, and teaching that they can reach out to and get that help. And it doesn't have to be a bad thing or a mark on their employment record, but rather it's a healthy way to live because we do live in a, a time of, you know, rapid change and high stress. And in many ways, this rapid pace of life, you know, humanity hasn't really kept up with it yet. And we're still figuring out how to deal with it all. So I do think this mental health piece will continue to be such an important part of society as this change continues to evolve. I think that's a great point. You know, the the idea of, of having a clean desk or <laughs> I guess an empty backpack or whatever it might be, uh, you know, an empty inbox it's a goal we all have, but at what cost is always the question. Nowadays with the technology, uh, you know, it really is something where it's always there. For example, there has been a spike for adolescent uh, girls uh, in, in suicides across the country. And some think that may be related to uh, negative effects of social media and cyberbullying and some of those things, because they're always, uh, and oftentimes without the parents' knowledge, you know, immersed in those worlds. And uh, I would say the same for, you know, folks that are working and sort of burning both ends of the candle. I mean, they, 
you know, I think everyone works in administration, but I think everyone that's working and knows that, you know, when you're short staffed and you're staying extra, uh, you know, it's going to take a toll on you. All those who are in the so-called sandwich generation who are taking care of aging parents, uh, their own kids, you know, any, any sort of caregivers, uh, there's a high risk of burnout. So I think just being aware of those things and sometimes your, your peers and your family members, your loved ones may be more aware of it than you are. Uh, but they might just say to you, you know, you've been, you've seemed stressed lately, uh, or you really haven't been yourself. I haven't seen you smile in a while. You seem really worried. That might be another sign that, you know, maybe it's time to pause and just think about how you set up your own schedule, your own life. Welcome to Bold Voices, our segment with rock star students from the University of Nebraska who are making a difference in rural. It's Caitlin, producer of the Rural Futures podcast. And with me today is Briley Kuhuzai, a University of Nebraska-Lincoln graduate and Rural Futures Institute Service Ship alum. Briley, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me, Caitlin. I'm excited. And tell us exactly where you're joining from. I'm joining you from the airport, the Harare International Airport here um, outside Harare, Zimbabwe. And I uh, had to come here because uh, this is where I could get the best internet connection. It was either this or getting some data on my cell phone and climbing a rock uh, out at the farm. So, Briarly, we want to give our guests a little bit of insight into who you are. I would refer to myself as an entrepreneur, an innovator, community development-infused form of entrepreneurship, social enterprise, uh, essentially. And um, let's see, I like to watch movies. I like to read books. I like the cold breeze in the evening here in Zimbabwe. Explain your home there in Zimbabwe. Uh, I'm on a small plot of land. I call it the farm, but if you think about it from a Nebraska context, you'll be misled. The core part of it is just 20 hectares, which is about 50, 60 acres. We've got cattle, goats, and sheep, um, and our goal is to raise the livestock, uh, butcher them ourselves, and, and market directly to the customer. If you think of it like a kind of like a safari savanna setting, so plenty of grass, you know, that brownie, goldy grass that you picture when you think of Africa, we've got that. But all the wildlife and stuff is in a national park, so we don't have those. We've got these beautiful granite big rocks that um, stick out of the ground in all sorts of places. And people that have crops have to farm around them. They're not going anywhere. But they're great to climb. They're great for kids. And they're great for catching cell phone signal. And it takes me, it takes me about 30 or 40 minutes to get into town from where I am. You have to kind of tell us your story, how you ended up at the University of Nebraska, and then what brought you home? I left Zimbabwe just wanting to go to go to college. And it happened to be that this college in Michigan gave me the biggest scholarship. That's how I ended up there. Then I met with a Lexington native uh, at, a, at a student conference in D.C. And he basically said that he was prepared to hire me with no uh, farming experience whatsoever. And I, and I jumped at the opportunity. And that was my taste of agriculture. That was my first taste of rural because I grew up in an urban city. And uh, it was a steep learning curve. After about six or eight months, you know, I was, I was starting to get it and uh, kind of just fell in love with it. While I was doing it, I uh, started thinking about doing a, a master's degree, met up with Tom Field of the Engler Institute, and he recommended master's in community development because I had future plans of, of going back to Zimbabwe. And uh, if you know, as Zimbabwe, all, we've got a variety of uh, economic and social and social problems. And I wanted to play my part. What value has your University of Nebraska experience 
and your Rural Futures Institute experience, what value has that brought you in building your life in Zimbabwe? Definitely, if you think about Africa and you think about less economically developed or, or developing countries or whatever the case may be, you kind of think that uh, Africa's a few steps behind. And, you know, in terms of technology or the amount of value added per agricultural, we might be a few, a few steps behind in that regard. But in terms of the people and in terms of the community and in terms of the coming together that's needed to better the community, we're not so different. And RFI really helped me uh, dig into that. RFI allowed me to put into practice a lot of the things that I was learning in my community development program. The community development program itself gave me a lot of, gave me a few tools to understand the, the dynamics of a community, be it rural or otherwise, and how it's functioning. I would say that that's culminating in, in understanding that we're not so different and we all just need to tie our shoelaces and, 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 and get to work. What types of experiences do you suggest that they embrace as a student? Meet someone who is not like you. Sit down and have a good conversation, a good experience with someone who's not like you and talk about everything. Meet someone whose ideas and experiences are different from you and engage them. It'll make you that much of a better person if you can maybe not understand them, but appreciate where they're coming from. The ability to appreciate someone and respect someone that is not like you is crucial in this global society we're developing where where the world is just getting smaller. You know, I do a lot of work, of course, in strategic foresight and futuring, but part of that is creativity. Part of that is innovation. And it's really hard for people to be creative when they're just focusing on a to-do list and a massive amount of activity rather than you know, being very intentional and using discernment on what's really important, what can you say no to, what's maybe not in your wheelhouse, how do you engage a team around these things and create different systems that really support the ability to be creative because so many organizations say, yeah, we want to be innovative. We want to, you know, really be competitive in the future, but they really aren't designing the lives of their employees to be that way because innovation does start with the individual. It really does. I think it does start with the individual, but I think it's fed by the culture or stifled by the culture. Right? No, that's true. That is absolutely uh, right. And, uh, and, and I know you're someone that that's a futurist. And so you really, think ahead and, and 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 I have no doubt that you've found ways to really carve out that time. I uh, believe in two things as a child psychiatrist and also as a parent of four kids myself, you know, I think that adults often don't take the time to play in the same way that kids do. And you know, there's something uh, that <laughs> I don't know if you grew up watching Mr. Rogers, but you know, uh, Mr. Rogers actually was quite a profound thinker as it turns out. And one thing he said is sort of like Play is the work of childhood. You know, you really are trying things out. You're processing things. We know this in, in kids who have been through trauma as well. Often you'll see in the play some of the terrible things they're trying to work out, you know, and what, what happened and reenact and so on. But on the positive end, you know, I believe that for, for all adults, you got to have some time to play. But that, that in, entails two things. You know, one is <laughs> it takes some risk, right? Because if you're going to play, you might mess up because you're probably not the world's expert in that thing. You're sort of, you know, processing in the back of your mind or bouncing off a couple other people. Uh, and then the second thing is then, if it's going to be risky, you got to be ready to fail 
And that's got to be okay, right, with the organization, uh, with your unit, you know, with your boss, whatever, or your colleagues. And I think for a lot of people, those two things are hard because it's a little bit of a risk and you don't want to put yourself out there. I recently read a a book. um, uh, It's about the founding of Pixar uh, and uh, written by Ed Catmull, the the president, I believe. And and he really said the manager's job is not to prevent risks. It's to uh, make it safe to take them. And I really like that because it it makes you really think about, well, as a leader, am I stifling creativity by saying, oh, you know, you messed up here, you know, do better next week? Or do I say something different? You know, wow, it looks like you really put yourself out there. You know, maybe it didn't work this time, but, you know, I'd love to see you keep trying new things. You know, I think there's different ways we can approach it and kind of buffer that risk for for our employees and our colleagues. Sort of the cultural norm is to be so serious and like really, you know, stiff. It's nice to see some of that changing, but, you know, a lot of the high level leaders I've coached, you know, that's the thing that is missing from their life so often. And, you know, part of, of coaching them is to encourage them and help them create some time and make that time to actually play. I mean, you know, there's nothing more refreshing than like a snowball fight with your kids, even, you know, like go sledding, go do these things. Yes. Actually fun. Or if you were a musician and you haven't picked up your instrument, like you had mentioned earlier for years, re-engage that part of yourself because it, it really brings out the best in you. And when I used to say that, people would look at me like, oh my gosh, she's talking about like having fun and we're talking about leadership and futuring and all these things. But then it's like it clicked. And people were like, okay, now how do I do that? Because it was really lacking from their life. But you know, I always say fun is the fountain of creativity, but it's also the fountain of youth. You know, I have this philosophy about workforce, future workforce, future people in any field. And, and it's that um, kind of like what you're saying, you can't, you can't just do the routine things if you're going to flip something like, you know, uh, there's not enough people in, in any field, right? So otherwise, in 25 years, guess what? Exact same thing if we're going to use the same approach. But, you know, there's some science and I do believe there's some art to it as well. So, you know, my first job in this department was uh, the only formal title I had was to help build a psychiatry interest group. Uh, which was medical students. And there's only one in the interest group, so it wasn't very successful. But, you know, I had in my fellowship encountered a really outstanding mentor. Her name was Dr. Paula Rausch, who's a child psychiatrist. And when we were trying to learn development, normal childhood development, she would invite all the fellows over, there are nine of us, to her house for breakfast for, I think, six or nine weeks. And, uh, and we'd go sit around the table and she'd serve us a very simple breakfast, you know, just you know, bread and, and uh, peanut butter and whatever. And we talked about development. And, um, you know, one of the things that we then did was go to, to see a, a preschool where her kids had gone to school and then, you know, just see what they did, you know, in, in, in their sort of all day recess, you know. And uh, that experience always stuck with me for two things, you know, because one is that it takes, it takes a little courage to open up your home. Uh, to uh, trainees or to colleagues or whatever. It's an extra step. But two is I've never forgotten it. And uh, and I think others have never forgotten it either. Many of us remember it fondly as one of the best parts of our training. And I realized that, you know, when I started here and there's no and there's one person going into psychiatry that, you know, we needed to do better than that. And so I started hosting things in my home and we'd invite, you know, students and faculty. And you really see outside of the work environment, people really let their hair down. 
you know, it's best if they can show up in their shorts or something, you know, and it's casual and, uh, and just relax, you know, and get to know each other. And I think as the students get to know the, the faculty, then I think they're also sort of unconsciously sort of auditioning them as future colleagues. They're looking at their lives and sort of auditioning their lives. Is this the kind of person I want to be? Is this the kind of balance I want to, want to pursue? And as it turns out, the latest study on why students choose psychiatry, uh, work-life integration and balance is one of the top three factors. So the only way you can show that is not, definitely not in your office, but by showing them that thing. You know, maybe it's, maybe it's piano. You know, maybe it's something different. It needs to be something that, you know, that, that gives them uh, some sense of who you are outside of work. Oh, absolutely. You get to see the real person. I mean, in so many ways, when we go to work, it's it's not really a facade. I mean, I think for some people it is, but you don't see the family that they're raising. You don't see who they are, or the hobbies they have. You don't, you don't see them as a whole person. Um, my previous position before coming to the Rural Futures Institute, I did a lot of team building at the Kimmel Education and Research Center, which is on um, Kimmel Orchard in Nebraska City, Nebraska. And we'd have companies come and we'd do things like Iron Chef cook-offs. And, That's great. You know, yeah, real active, very fun, but also very purposeful types of activities. Yes. It's the same thing you're saying. I mean, so often a lot of team conflict is because people just really don't know or understand each other outside of the meetings they sit in. You know, so how can we break down those barriers, really understand people as people and build that camaraderie, but also that compassion and real like for other people. And we're, we're more apt to do that if we know them and appreciate who they are rather than judging who they are. That's really well said. You are a leader in your space. But I'd love to know more about your leadership philosophy, your style. Uh, there's a psychologist that said, uh, with any organization, it's always good to be half in and half out. And, and what he meant by that was that if you have six different jobs, no one really feels like you're part of that organization because, you know, you're running around and you're not really present. Right. So and that and people understand that. Right. So you have to be at least, you know, half time in, you know, doing that thing where people see you, you know, they recognize what you're doing, that work and that kind of thing. But this goes back to your earlier point about creativity. You have to find that thing. You have passion area and and, and you got to carve it out. You know, and it may not be there right away, but however you get there, that's just one going to create vitality for you in the workplace is having that thing. You know, for some people, that's research. For some people, that's community engagement. I really enjoy that piece, for example. For some people, it's something different, right? It might be building infrastructure. You know, it could be anything, publishing. But, um, but having that space to really carve that out is so important. And, uh, and then not being too committed to too many things is very important as well. So that was one principle. You know, another one that someone told me was, you know, think about your uh, portable skill set, because in a career, you may wear six, 10, you know, many different hats. But what do you take away from each? And, ha and have you grown? And as I thought about my career, you know, I came in, again, really just as a, as a, as a clinician, which is a great thing. But I didn't really know anything about leadership. And so a lot of what I've learned has been on the job. But I did try to be intentional about it and try to write some things down. At some point, I realized, you know, there's some major gaps of what I do and don't know. You know, I, I know a little bit about managing budgets, but, you know, I really don't know about healthcare economics in the same way as someone who's running a hospital does. 
And if I'm going to ever do clinical leadership, I should probably learn something about that. So, for example, last year, uh, you know, I enrolled in an executive MBA program that's sponsored through our hospital. Having those relationships, what Gallup would say uh, is the friend at work, so important, so easy to neglect. But uh, if you don't have it, I, I really feel it, you know. So it's the people that you can go and, you know, really debrief with that, you know, aren't doing it because of your role, but really they genuinely, you like each other, you know, that you can share your woes and they can share theirs, you know, that kind of thing. You, you can't just create it, you know, you have to find it. You got to carve that time out and then you got to nurture it once you have those people. I've been lucky to have those people here. And, uh, and, it, and it, it's so important for just for attention and for your own vitality as a leader. So I'd like to touch a little bit on, on Beacon. Um, the Behavioral Health Education Center of Nebraska. Tell us a little bit more about your work there and how you see that evolving into the future. Well, that's that's the half of my job that is, uh, you know, creative work, I would say, in that uh, there's not really another uh, center like Beacon in, in the 50 states that we've seen. Uh, it was created out of passion by a group that included a philanthropist, uh, you know, uh, academic psychiatrist, uh, those senior administrators, government leaders, and so on. But it creates, it was functions almost like a skunk works in that uh, because there's not 50 beacons around the state, around the U.S., we don't have to do it any which way. And that was super important because, you know, I think we're trying to solve what we call a wicked problem, uh, which is the shortage of providers in the highest underserved areas in the state, which have always been very underserved, and the current provider population is getting older. In fact, uh, you know, I'm not calling them old, but uh, the data suggests that over half of the psychiatrists, psychologists, advanced practice nurses in psychiatry are 50 or over, which means there's a very high number retiring every year. And just to retain the same number, uh, you have to have, you know, a lot more people coming in. So we, when we saw that, uh, we also looked at are there healthy pipelines for people coming in? And there's some great programs for healthcare professionals the so-called uh, Rural Health Opportunities Program, RHOP program, and so on, that, you know, pipeline people, I'd say primarily for MDs into family medicine, internal medicine, you know, primary care, you know, and those are great areas, but they weren't really turning out psychiatrists or psychologists. So we realized that we had to put our own pipeline together. And the last nine years, frankly, have been, uh, you know, from uh, the, the inception to now, I've been really trying to get all those, those kinks out of that pipeline as much as possible. So, you know, we started working with, uh, you know, high school students, you know, from around the state, and that's been great collaboration uh, with a number of different training organizations. And uh, we worked with college students, you know, around the state, hosted different college symposia, particularly for uh, those in highly underserved areas. So rural students, we've always prioritized, uh, but also, you know, those from might be North Omaha, South Omaha, Native American, uh, you know, uh, uh, individuals. So uh, those that are missing basically in the workforce. Uh, and, um, and then we worked in medical school. And uh, over the last, you know, four years, we've increased the number of medical students going into psychiatry by about 63% or so. So really it's gone up and there's been a sustained increase in those folks. And now we're just about to help work with our department of psychiatry here to put up a new psychiatry residency program along with the one that currently exists to try to increase those in that, that part of the pipeline. The last part is something we've been doing throughout, which is trying to support the providers who are already out there uh, by providing a lot of training for them, but not just 
what, you know, random training, but the things that really would help them in their practice and the great public health needs in Nebraska. So we're talking about addiction being a major shortage area. How do we increase those who have expertise in prescribing some medications for, you know, help with addiction? It might be to alcohol, it might be to opioids, that kind of thing. Uh, we talked about integrated behavioral health earlier, you know, and this is a way to how do you train up social workers, counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists to really work with four or five primary care clinics and, and, and really serve those patients in a very, uh, you know, uh, smart way where, you, you know, really you're spreading your expertise out. So there's really, uh, you know, a lot of things we've learned, a lot of mistakes we've made as well, I might add, but uh, this goes back to taking risks and really looking at the data and outcomes. Now, thank you for all you're doing to help enhance that capacity and congratulations on the growth and success. And we're so excited to be able to promote that work and really get it out to people so they know what you're doing. Yeah, I heard, I think, a statistic the other day, like a thousand people a day are retiring right now. So creating this pipeline, helping people get to capacity, you know, in their licensure is so important in especially the healthcare field. Working in this area of mental health, I mean, obviously we hear and see a lot about the challenges and we can imagine it might be a difficult field, you know, to work in in many ways. So what excites you about working in the field of mental health? Well, I think the future of mental health is really going to be collaboration across professions and you have to practice it. You know, you can't just talk about it and then train in the same specialty and then stay with your colleagues. You have to practice working in areas that are frankly, uncomfortable, you know, it might be scope of practice, you know, it might be training, you know, it might be areas where you might not all agree, but the needs are great. So, you know, two weeks ago, I was in DC helping lead a behavioral prescriber summit and uh, the national group for the physician assistants, psychiatrists, uh, nurse practitioners in psychiatry and pharmacists, we were all together in one room, really talking about the future. And when you look at things like all the opioid deaths that are happening in the U.S., you can't just rely on one profession to solve them. And I think as a group, if we can unite around a common behavioral health flag and say that this is something we all will do together, and if I have expertise, I'll share it. If you have expertise, you'll share it. I think we'll be a lot better off. And I always come out of those conversations, especially the tough ones, uh, a little bit more inspired because I know some real work has happened because you're a little bit uncomfortable, frankly. And that's kind of why I know we're making some progress. And I think, too, that just, you know, makes sense to me because knowing you, I can see how you stay on that cutting edge by enjoying a challenge. But also you bring so many people around that and a lot of capacity around that to really solve those grand challenges in unique and innovative ways. Well, I'd say every one of those interactions kind of is very kind. I learn a lot at the table and, and <laughs> you know, there's there's all sorts of things that I just had wrong, you know? And, and then when you hear it from, you know, the pharmacists about what they're doing in the VA hospitals, you know, that was a revelation to all of us. You know, that many of them are running clinics like psychiatrists, you know, in VA. So, you know, I think the, the more conversation that happens, the better. And then frankly, it does take a little bit of a uh, spirit of being a maverick, as you said earlier, to say, you know what, uh, there's some things my own profession has got wrong. And, uh, and, and I'm not always going to agree with our state chapter of our national organization because, you know, my greater duty is to the workforce of the state. And, and sometimes that means some tough choices. But, you know, if you ever ask me, you know, should we, you know, protect our turf in psychiatry versus, you know, should we get some more access? It's always going to be about access. Mm-hmm.
One last uh, question for you, Dr. Liu. What parting words of wisdom do you have for our audience? Well, I would say that, you know, when I went through training, uh, I think I got an incomplete toolkit. And it was really about just the nuts and bolts of how to take care of patients in the old model. And if I were to say, talk to tomorrow's students, if any of them are listening, uh, if tomorrow's providers I would really encourage them to learn more about two things which I failed to learn about when I was in training. So one is is population health. Uh, And that really means that, you know, my client is not just the person sitting with me in this exam room, but my client might be a neighborhood, you know, it might be a a school, it might be, uh, you know, county corrections, it might be some other area. But how am I going to take my limited time and work as smartly as possible to help the entire population. And that's something that, you know, I feel like needs to be taught, especially in a state like ours, where there's so many gaps, you know, to really think about those skills. The second piece, which we've talked about in many, many ways this hour, is, is sustainability yourself, you know, really being thoughtful about self-care, wellness. Uh, we know that sometimes the work is hard. A lot of clients we work with have, have had a lot of trauma. And sometimes that can weigh on people who had their own trauma histories and, and just uh, something we call compassion fatigue. And sometimes you get a little burnt out. So really taking care of yourself, making sure that you have good colleagues, you know, the friends at work, making time for those hobbies, those areas. I would say that would help you to be retained in the workforce far longer and, and really to thrive and have joy in your practice. I think that is really the key. So you know, I'd say those two areas, if there are future students that are listening. Yeah, I love that word joy. And I'm so glad that, you know, that's really becoming, you know, something people are focusing on, like, how do we create joy in our lives in this busy time with all this rapid change and so much being thrown at us all the time, but still, you know, making priorities around well-being, people, joyfulness. I think it's an exciting time. and, And I'd love to see how that evolves in the future, because I think it'll become more and more a priority you know, for people as they want more of a life experience and not just a to-do list. So I, we know you're active on social media. We follow you. We're huge fans. But where can people find you, Dr. Liu? Well, uh, if they want to, uh, if they're on Twitter, uh, it is at Dr. Howard Liu, L-I-U is my last name. Uh, so they can follow me there. And, uh, you know, I, I pretty much put a few things out there almost every day. Uh, there's also just a tremendous community out there for mental health. And, uh, and I think that uh, if, they, if they're, they're a consumer of mental health, if they're a provider of mental health, you know, if you just put in so-called hashtag mental health or hashtag addictions, uh, any of those, you'll find so many advocates. And, and frankly, sometimes when I'm a little burnt out, that's where I find inspiration. And I seek every day an act of courage online that, uh, you know, inspires me, people telling their stories uh, and standing up for things that really Uh, That gives me a hope for the future. Thanks for listening to the Rural Futures podcast. You can find us on social media at Rural Futures, and we hope you will share our show with your networks to raise awareness and bold thinking for rural areas across the country. Next up, Rural Maverick from Nebraska, Amber Pankinen. Amber is a registered dietitian, nutrition communicator, recipe creator at Sterlist.com, and host of the Healthy Under Pressure podcast. I work with a lot of students and it's so interesting to me to hear their thoughts on food production. You know, they've been led to believe that the word process is bad. 
it's having conversations like that to to teach them that you are going to be the future trusted food and nutrition professional. You have to be able to answer questions about how food is produced. Because so often we hear things from another person are those sound bites and we just pass them on as if they're truth without being skeptical. And so I think that's a really important part of the conversation as well. 